All right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and turn over to the book of Hebrews as we spend some time in the Word together. As we study the pages of Scripture, absorb its lessons, dig into the words that God has given us and study through them, we, we find many grand themes, many great narratives, many uh, wonderful accounts of Scripture that we could dig into and spend time in. We, we could spend endless hours talking about the great deeds and the lessons of the patriarchs. If that's interesting to you, make sure you come on out to adult Bible study in the evening as we're digging into Israel's history. Uh, we, we could spend endless hours examining the character and the ministry of Moses and the foundations of the nation of Israel as God called them out and made them a people. We could study the foundations of the very world itself and begin to understand how God created out of nothing and the framework that he has set up for humanity to live within. We could examine from there the, the theme of the kingdom of God and that final sovereign the king from David's throne who will come and redeem all of that which Adam lost in the fall and one day restore to a perfect world ready and fit to serve and honor God. We could delve into the prophecies of God and examine the truths regarding the ages yet to come. We could follow the, the logic and the lessons of Peter and Paul and John and the other apostles and writers in the New Testament as they exposit the depths and the riches of Scripture and dig out and show us that the church is not some new thing, but something that has been in God's plan since eternity past. And lay for us a foundation for our understanding of what our role in God's plan is and how we ought to live in worship in this day and age as members of the church. We could study the formal themes and the outlines of systematic theology in an attempt to clarify and condense and understand the truths of Scripture. And all of these and so many more would be rich and profitable time spent in the pages of Scripture. But no doctrine has more impact no area of study is so defines our every breath and our every moment in this life and in eternity to follow as does the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of soteriology to give it its formal name. We sometimes tend to think of the gospel as something that we preach to the lost so that they may respond to it and come to salvation as something that we discuss so that we can recognize how God worked in us and something that we study so that we can articulate it more clearly when we're speaking with the lost. We tend to think of the gospel as that which brings us to God and then our lives change into an ongoing series of actions and moments in which we seek to live up to and live out the work of salvation in our day-to-day -day lives. And as though somehow the things that we do and the daily lives that we live and the choices that we make validate and complete that salvation. 
This is a mindset that the early Jewish believers in and around Jerusalem would have understood well and agreed with. They, they had accepted that Christ was the Messiah. And they had turned from the, the legalism and the strict obedience to the Jewish law and from the mindset and the attitude that sought to be saved by keeping the law. But as we study out the pages of the book of Hebrews, it becomes clear that uh, that background that they had and their human nature worked together and sought to draw them back into ritualism. Over and over again in the pages of the book of Hebrews, the author lays out for us uh, this simple reality. Christ is better. He examines over and over again uh, the rituals, the formalism, the, the traditions that they had grown up in in the Jewish faith, many of which they brought over into Christianity with them and were now under persecution from their family and from the culture around them and from the temple, they were tempted to return to that ritualism. And the author of Hebrews pleads with them and says, look, you've accepted Christ, don't now try to add something else onto him. He's better. He's more. He's sufficient. He is all that you need. You don't need anything beyond the gospel. But the mindset and the attitudes of a lifetime still sought to creep in and combine with human nature, calling them back to an attitude of doing things and following rules in order to fulfill their relationship with God. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author repeatedly shows that Christ is not so simply the fulfillment of the forms and traditions of the Old Testament, but is far greater than all the religious trappings that they longed after and were tempted to return to. Additionally, the author of Hebrews warns repeatedly that abandoning the grace of Christ and seeking to return to the forms and trappings of legalism would result in God's chastening hand upon them, acting to correct them as a loving parent who desired the best for them, who desired the richness of the gospel lived in and through them rather than a return to formalism. You know, our human nature desperately longs after things to do. We, we want something to do. We, we recognize this in the world all around us. Every time there's a crisis, what's the hue and cry? We need to do something. And oftentimes, what the something is almost doesn't matter, right? We see this even in our own lives. Tragedy strikes, and we want to do something, even when there's nothing to do. We have this longing that if we can just do something, it will make it somehow better or at least distract us a little bit. And so we understand this. As the church here in Jerusalem was going through persecution, there was a desire to do something, to go back to the rituals, to go back to the traditions, to have things to do in order to fulfill and complete their salvation, to add something, to bring along some work that would allow them to feel like they were accomplishing something. 
We have this desire so strongly that even in many situations where there's nothing to do, we make up things to do, even at the risk of making the problem worse sometimes, just so that we have something to do. So it is that when we come to chapter 10, nearly at the close of the author of Hebrews' discourse, the author of the book of Hebrews comes to the central tenet of the Mosaic Code, that which was most holy and most efficacious and and shows inherently in itself that even the sacrificial system was futile and proved that it was but pointing to something better. The the Jews held this up as the central tenant of their worship. That when you had a problem, you brought a sacrifice to the temple and you shed blood to show the seriousness of the issue. That the, the animals were offered in order to make a right relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews then comes to chapter 10 and he says, even that, even that thing which was so precious to you, even that thing which God commanded should be rightly understood as but a shadow pointing at something better. Let's go ahead and stand for a moment before we dig into Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 and read through our text together. Tim will have it up on the screen for us. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 14, read with me, starting in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offered continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offering for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily, and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified." Let's look to the Lord in prayer. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest. We have one who stands before us in your presence. The author of Hebrews earlier calls him an anchor for our soul, someplace where we can find refuge and stability. One who is able not just to cover over our sins for a day or for an hour or a season, but one who paid their full price, who has offered one sacrifice forever, who never needs to repeat that work, whose work is fulfilled and complete and accomplished. Father, help us as we look to His work in the gospel, as we look to His sanctifying work, His salvific work in bringing us to You, and help us to rejoice in it and to understand how then we ought to live in light of the gospel. We thank You and praise You in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. The author of Hebrews here gives us this great dissertation, exposes for us the the fault and the failing of the sacrificial system. And the news that he gives here to the Jewish mind is shattering news, but really to human thinking as a whole. From Adam and Eve on, God had commanded sacrifice. Remember, what's the first thing God does? He he meets Adam and Eve in the garden, and He exposes their sin, and he, He pronounces the curse of sin upon humanity and all creation. And then what's what's the very first thing He does with them after that? Yeah, He He makes them a sacrifice, not of fig leaves, but now of skins. Now I'm not the greatest woodsman out there, but I'm not aware of any way to get the skin off the animal without first killing it. They object to that. Doesn't go well. God offers the first sacrifice. He sets the precedent for them that sin is serious and it demands a payment of death. Remember, what what was Satan's cry to them? God has said, you will die you won't surely die. See, you take the bite of the fruit. Here you are. You're still alive. What's God's response? No, sin has a great price. Death may not be instant in the physical sense, but sin demands a payment in life. It brings death to all around it. Instantly, spiritual death for them, separation from the Father, Following that, the death of all creation as it is cursed and and death enters into creation through Adam's sin. And finally, fully symbolized there in the sacrifice of an animal standing in Adam and Eve's place, covering them over with its life and its blood. We get down to Cain and Abel and they recognize that the pattern has been set. They know that there is a need for sacrifice. We find Noah, and he understands the need for sacrifice. He takes extra at God's command of the, the clean animals so that he can offer sacrifices after they return out of the flood. 
Abraham recognizes the need for sacrifice. And finally, under Moses in the law, that the sacrificial system is given its full fruit and flavor and all the details are spelled out of how that should play out and how the animal should be prepared. The serious nature of sin has from the very beginning demanded a sacrifice. This demand for blood sacrifice was understood. And that path caters to the human mindset. Excuse me. It offers us something to do that allows us to feel as though we are participating and adding something to the process, as though we are dealing with our sin by doing something. And so we, in our humanity, take it beyond just doing that thing to symbolize the seriousness of sin in the Jewish mind and in the human mind. We take that to the next step and we began to believe, it began to be Jewish doctrine, Hebrew doctrine, that those sacrifices were actually dealing with the sin. You know, it's interesting, God, God is not a stranger to language. Shockingly, God who created language in the first place knows how to use it effectively. God is very careful how he describes the work of sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. There is one word that overwhelmingly is used to speak about the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Atonement. Do you know what that word atonement means? We tend to equate it with, with dealing with sin, with taking away sin. But in reality, the word atonement means covering. If you go back and you read in Noah's account, the first time the word atonement appears in the book of Genesis, it's in the story of Noah. And what happens is Noah goes up into the ark and God closes the door and the text literally says, and God covered over the door. God atoned the door of the ark. He covered it over. That's what the blood of the animal sacrifices were doing. God says over and over and over through the Old Testament, they were covering over. It was putting some blood on top of the sin as a symbol that you understood the seriousness of your sin and you were willing to agree with God that it was serious so that you could continue to have relationship together. It wasn't taking it away. It wasn't cleaning it in any way. It wasn't getting rid of that sin. It was just covering over it. I use the illustration sometimes when I talk about this of, of whitewash. It, all the Dave probably knows what I mean. You, the old farm boys did this, and you whitewash stuff in the barn, and it, it wasn't real paint, but it was cheap to make. How long did whitewash hold up in the barn, Dave? Not very long. Not very long. And what was under it when it started flaking off? The same old dirt and junk and scrubby. It looked good for a little while, and it was cheap and easy to do, and so you'd cover things over with it, and, and it was useful. But after a little while, it would start flaking off, and all the same dirt and junk and scruffy wood was under there that started with. It didn't fix anything, it just covered it over. Then you'd come along later, and you'd cover it over again. And you'd come along later, and you'd cover it over again. That's what the sacrificial system was. It was this constant reminder that you were covering over sin. That it had a high price. That it demanded something from us. 
but that we had no way to pay the price that it demanded. And so you offered a sacrifice and you'd cover over it for a little while. And then you'd have to come back and cover over it again and again and again. And so the author of Hebrews, uh, pick up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The author of Hebrews says that the, the sacrificial system, the epitome of the law here, had a shadow of good things to come. A shadow of good things to come. The author of Hebrews here is clearly well-versed in Jewish culture and traditions. His writings make it clear that he understood the Jewish mind thoroughly. He was almost certainly someone who was intimate with the scribal and the pharisaical traditions of Judaism, a Jew all his life. And he comes here to the culmination of the Jewish worship experience, the sacrificial system. Excuse me. And from his very first words, the news that he brings to his audience is devastating to their traditions, to their beliefs, to their human desire to do something. First, he calls the law, and specifically the sacrificial system that that epitomizes, that's the heart of the law, a shadow of good things to come. I'm not particularly a a movie buff. It's just not my thing. Um, But, you know, there's a long and venerable tradition, particularly in a, a specific genre of movies, of the guy walking down the hallway And you can't see him yet, but you see what going ahead of him? His shadow. And the eerie music plays in the background, and the shadow makes its way down, and all of a sudden, uh, the music jumps up, and you cut, and you see the guy finally. And it makes everybody jump, right? That's what he's talking about here. The, The law isn't the actual thing. It's the shadow creeping down the hallway. It's to let you know there's something else coming after it. It's a foreshadowing. It's that glimpse ahead of time of the rough shape and outline of what's coming without any of the details. And so the author of Hebrews here says, the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, it promises that there's something better coming, but it's not the very image of the thing. The terminology here it speaks of an engraver's shop. If you're making casts of something, you, you have the shadow, you have the form, you have the mold of something, and you can make more casts out of it. But it's not the very thing itself. It's just uh, the, the shadow. It's, it's the thing that promises that you can make something better. And then you have to pour your liquid metal into it or, or for press your clay into it or whatever it might be in order to use that mold to make the thing. He says it's, it's just a foreshadowing. It's not the thing itself. It's just a promise that it's coming. Excuse me. So the whole law, and specifically the sacrificial system, is just a shadow of good things to come. Not the good thing in and of itself, not an end in and of itself, but merely a glimpse around the corner, the promise that something better is coming. At this juncture, when the author of Hebrews writes, the law has been in place for hundreds of years. We're not here going to delve fully into its purpose. Paul does that ably in Romans and Galatians. 
But it's important to note here that the, the author of Hebrews is not saying there's a defect in the law. He's not saying the law is flawed in any way. He's saying you've misunderstood its purpose from the beginning. The law is not broken. It does exactly what it was designed to do by God in the beginning. Rather than taking the law and recognizing in it God's perfect character and a template to restrain sin, to reveal God's moral character and the practical outline for Israel's civil and religious life, men began attempting to take it as a template to do things in order to gain their salvation. God's intent from the beginning was to show that His character was so perfect, so high, so holy, so separate from the world, that we could never attain to it. And yet, the mindset from a human perspective very quickly becomes, I can do that. Remember how many times Jesus has this conversation The rich young ruler comes to him. Have you kept the law? Oh, yeah, I've kept all of it from my youth. Not a chance. There's no way that's true. He may have kept the outward forms of some pieces of the law, but it's not possible that he could have kept the entire law in its true and full intent from his youth. Only Christ is capable of that. Only Christ ever did that in all of history. And yet over and over and over again, when Christ speaks with someone and he brings up the law, what's the response from the Jews? Oh, yeah, 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 we do all that. No, you don't. You misunderstood it from the beginning. And so they take it and they, they make it something that they can keep and they, they reinterpret it so that they can follow it and, and they make it something that's manageable from a human perspective. Pardon me. Paul talks about this as he refers to himself. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a keeper of the law in all of its outward forms. But when I finally came to know Christ, I looked back on everything that I had and I counted it as dung. But it's because I came to recognize that I'd never understood the law. And it's not a bunch of outward rules that I can keep in order to earn favor with God. Instead, it's a template for God's character that when I rightly understand it, I come to recognize excuse me, demands of me a heart that I can never create in myself. If you have any doubts about the viability of that path of following the law, go back and spend time rereading the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Paul is brutal. He tears it apart. There is no way Anyone, under any circumstance in all of history, excuse me, has ever satisfied God's demands under the law in themselves. No pagan who's never heard the law can escape it. No lawkeeper of the Jews can escape it. No good and moral person can escape it. None of us have ever satisfied God's moral character. 
No one has ever had the opportunity to be good except Christ himself. What then is the fruit of the law and a sacrificial system that is only a shadow of good things to come? Excuse me. Because the law is not the good thing itself, it's just a shadow of good things to come, the the keepers of the law offered sacrifices over and over again, and yet were not made perfect. Look look back at verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, The law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the thing, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. It says, no amount of doing things, no amount of bringing sacrifices, no amount of offering the blood of bulls and of goats can ever change the heart of a man or woman. It's an outward ritual, and for them, he even goes on a little bit later, he says, they, they were offering them in accordance with the law. They weren't doing something wrong offering those sacrifices, but that's not what the sacrifices were intended to do. They were never designed to make us perfect. They were never designed to fix our sin-broken hearts. They were designed to show us how desperately we need a Savior. And so they'd offer them continually, year by year, and yet were never made perfect. Follow the logic here. This is just devastating to the Jewish mind. Verse 2, for then, that is, if they could make someone perfect, if you could offer enough sacrifices to make yourself right with God, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. If the sin were really taken care of by the sacrifice, you wouldn't have to keep coming back and offering more sacrifices because it was taken care of. It's done, it's gone, it's behind us. And if we were once made right by offering sacrifices, then we would be able to stop sinning. But the fact that we don't stop sinning and we therefore need to continually offer more sacrifices proves to us inherently That the sacrificial system wasn't making us better, wasn't making us right with God, wasn't fixing anything in us. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sins. It's not possible. See, there's a fundamental disconnect here. Israel had fallen into this trap of believing that they could offer a sacrifice and that would erase their sin debt before God. Except you go all the way back to the beginning, from the very get-go, what does God tell Adam and Eve the price of their sin would be? Their death. Not somebody else's death. Not some animal's death. Not the curse of sin on creation, their death. There is no amount of bulls and goats that you can sacrifice and have it amount to your value in God's eyes. 
The sin of your soul demands the price of your soul. There is no substitute that can be made. There are no animal sacrifices. There is no ritual that can ever take that place. You stand accountable before God for yourself, for your sin. That is a terrifying thought. That is a thought that when you rightly understand it, produces what Scripture calls the fear of the Lord. A righteous and a holy terror that the Almighty, the just God of creation will demand an account from your soul one day. And so the author of Hebrews looks and he says, you've been offering sacrifices, you've been offering the blood of bulls and of goats, and and no matter how much you do it, it never adds up to the payment that needed to be made. And it never can and it never will. You've offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and they go on year after year after year because the sin's not getting dealt with. It's just getting covered over for a little while. And it's acting not as a means to fix your sin problem, but as a shadow, as a promise that there's something better yet coming. Look on to verse 5. Not only is it a shadow of good things to come, but in verses 5 through 10, we see the good thing revealed. The good thing revealed in us. The question and then inevitably and forcefully prevents it, presents itself, what then is the good thing that the law is a shadow of? The author of Hebrews is, is brutally clear that the sacrificial system they had put their hopes in, the sacrificial system they'd been pinning all of their desires and their thinking to, was not in itself a solution to the sin problem. So what then is the solution? If it's the promise of something better to come, then what's the better thing? Verse 5, Therefore when he, this is Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If the law only promises better things to come, what is that better thing that we're called to long after? Once more in answering the question, the author reveals his deep Jewish roots and knowledge. He quotes here from extensively from Psalm 40. And it reveals that Jesus of Nazareth is not some newcomer on the scene, some sudden twist in the plot, but has been part of God's plan from eternity past. He here reveals him as the Messiah, the full fulfiller of all God's plans and revelations, and the one whom all of them were created to point to. 
The law, more than anything else, was meant to teach men that they needed a Savior because the revealed character of God was so much higher, so much greater, so much more pure than any man could live up to. All of the law, all of the sacrificial system, all of the prophets, all of the psalms, all of the hopes and dreams of Israel all point to the Messiah. And the author of Hebrews here says, look, when he came, you know, there, there are some things in, in Jewish culture that, that are just assumed. They, they, when they talk about the he, here you can chase back a little ways and you can find conclusive we're talking about Christ. But this is a common thing in Jewish culture. They, they talk about he. But, well, who's the he? Well, it's, it's either God or much more often it's the coming Messiah. That they do the same thing. They talk about sometimes the mountain. And you say, right, well, which mountain? That's always Mount Sinai. That's the mountain. That, that just burns such a, a scar on the Jewish mind. It, it's so indelibly printed in their thinking that it's always looming over every discussion. The mountain is always Sinai. And the he here is Christ. When he came, when the Messiah finally arrived, the one who had been promised from Adam and Eve on down, when he came, he said this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is a quote out of Psalm 40, a Davidic psalm where David is speaking about the worship of God. Originally spoken by David as he marveled at God's work in David, leading the nation of Israel back to God. And here these are shown to be words that have a further meaning in seeing the second Adam, the final king of David's lineage, and the heir of all the promises of Scripture. Here he says, you came and you didn't demand of me more sacrifices and offerings, but you prepared for me a body. You prepared me to be the final sacrifice. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Let's unpack that for a second. That, that is a common theme in the prophets of the Old Testament. It's a common theme that Paul talks about it on several occasions. The author of Hebrews hits on it here. In sacrifices and offerings, you had no pleasure. And so the question comes, well, then why did God ask for them? Like, they're all over in the Old Testament. We saw them start with Adam and Eve, and they're clearly laid out and carried on throughout the patriarchs and throughout the early period of Israel's history, and on, they're, they're codified in the Mosaic Law. And why is God asking for them all the time if he doesn't want them? The issue here isn't that sacrifice and offering had anything wrong with them. He goes on and in verse 8, he says, which are offered according to the law. You are doing what you were told to do. But if you go back and you read through the minor prophets in particular, Malachi makes this point almost excruciatingly clear. He says, you're bringing sacrifices and offerings, but you're doing it in a heart that is not a heart of worship. Rather than bringing me the best, you're bringing me the, the sick and the lame of the flock. 
Rather than bringing me a sacrifice that represents a heart that is repentant and desires right relationship with me, you're checking a box off the list. You know, my, my grandfather, and I'm, I'm not meaning to stir up trouble here, but uh, my grandfather was a, a very devout Catholic on my mother's side. And kind of the epitome of that interaction in my mind is the story my mother will tell about they would go to Christmas Eve Mass, which for them meant you would go at 12.01 on the morning of the 25th. And Grandpa had, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you might have done that, but Grandpa was very clear about the rationale for that. They went at 12.01 on the 25th, just after midnight, so that they could then come home after Mass and sleep in and not have to be bothered with any of it on the rest of Christmas Day. That check in the box, right? He, he felt obligated to go to Mass as a good Catholic on Christmas. But rather than having a heart that desired that, and there's all kinds of issues there you could spend a lot of time getting into, he was checking the box. And that's what Christ is talking about here. He's saying, look, you're bringing offerings and sacrifices, and it's not the sacrifice and the offering that I have pleasure in. It's the heart attitude that was supposed to go with that. It's the heart of repentance that agrees with God and says, my sin is a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. It's a heart that desires to be turned back to God and to restore right relationship with Him. And when you bring an offering of sacrifice and you don't have that heart, it's just bad barbecue. You're not a compli- you know, it's, it's like what we always say about baptism. If you, have, if you get baptized as an infant or you get baptized without actually knowing Christ as your Savior, and we're not talking about believers' baptism, then you just had a weird bath in front of everybody. Like, it didn't do anything because it's a symbol, and if the heart attitude isn't there that it's meant to symbolize, then it accomplishes nothing. In the same way, the sacrifices are a symbol. They're an outward form that foreshadows the need for a Savior. And if the heart attitude for the Savior isn't there, then you're just killing a lot of bulls and goats, and it's accomplishing nothing. And so the author of Hebrews quotes here, and he says, you've sent me in a body not to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, Christ affirming here that Scripture reveals him. And what has he come? I have come to do your will, O God. That is an incredible statement. The Father and the Son and the Spirit from eternity past had planned for Christ to come and offer himself the sacrifice, the redemption of mankind. John belabors this point in his gospel. You read John's gospel and over and over and over again, the statement, some flavor of this statement comes up. It's not yet my time. Christ says it over and over and over and over again. 
you get the impression from John's gospel that Christ spent his entire life with his eyes fixed on the cross. And everything else leading up to that was important, but wasn't the point. And so every moment along the way, this isn't that time yet. I'm not ready for that yet. It's not that time yet. The Father's time is coming. It's not that time yet. I'm here to do the Father's will. And the Father's will leads me to that hill on Golgotha. The Father's will leads me to that cross where I will sacrifice myself for humanity. Christ did not come to end the sacrificial system because it was wrong for Israel to offer the sacrifices. He came to end it because its purpose had always been to direct men to their need for a Savior. And men had always willfully chosen to misunderstand and misapply the sacrifices in bad faith and with bad intent. God's pleasure had never been in the death of animals and the burning of their flesh. God is not some kind of weird barbecue aficionado, as some have suggested. That's not what's going on in the pages of Scripture. Instead, his desire has always been for the hearts and the souls of men. To turn them back to seeking a remedy for their sin problem. And so it was that Christ came to do the Father's will in a body fit for sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of bulls and of goats that could never take away sin, but of himself as the perfect God-man. The second Adam, the sacrificial king. He completes and sets aside the sacrifices of the law in order that he might replace them and show forth the good news of the gospel that he was willing to sacrifice himself. Once for all, perfect redemption for all who are called according to the will of the Father. The same will that made Christ willing calls those who are his and leads them to Christ. And Christ, in obedience to the Father, made himself that offering. Not offered over and over again, week after week, year after year, but once. Perfect, efficient, and sufficient. So that all who are being sanctified by God are sanctified, transformed, made new in Christ. Look what he says, verses 8 and following. He looks at it and he says, Previously, or, or first, he says, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them. And then the author adds this parenthetical, which are offered according to the law. They were doing what God had told them to do, but with a wrong heart attitude. You know, the, Paul nails this in Romans chapter 3. He says, there, there are none who seek after God. There are none who do what is right. There are none who desire Him. You know, sometimes we look at the world around us and we say, you know what, there's a lot of good people. I meet good people all the time. I meet nice people all the time. What's God say about their goodness? It's filthy rags. In fact, the author, Solomon, writing in the Proverbs, he says that even the plowing of the wicked 
is sin before God. Even the most innocuous things, the the nicest things, the people who who seem just like the nicest people in the world, if they're doing those things out of a heart attitude that's in rebellion against God, those are not good things. They earn zero merit with God. We cannot earn merit with God. There's nothing we can do that will please and satisfy God. And so the author of Hebrews here says, look, you're offering sacrifices, but out of a heart that's desiring to check the box, to earn some kind of favor with God, rather than out of a heart that recognizes that the sacrifice points to your desperate need for a Savior. You're doing it in accordance with the law, but it's still worthless. Verse 9, then he said, behold, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And by that will, the will of God that calls him to cast aside the sacrificial system, that he may obey God, by that will we have been sanctified, made clean and right before God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What a difference that is How that stands in opposition to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was offered day after day after day, year after year after year, priest after priest after priest. Those whom Christ sanctified makes holy before the Father. They're not atoned for. Their sin's not just covered up for a little while, a little bit of whitewash on the outside and call it good. He makes them new creatures. Those who are his, he puts a new heart in. And he breathes life in where there was no life to start with. He makes them his own. And those who have been sanctified by Christ are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Never again. There's nothing else that is necessary. When Christ had completed his work on the cross, and he spoke those words and said, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done so that we could have a right relationship with the Father, everything that needed to be done so that we could be sanctified, made clean, and have every right to stand before the Father as His own was done. There is nothing for us to add. There's nothing that we can add. There's nothing else to be accomplished. It's finished. It's done once for all. And so having seen the shadow of good things to come and the good product, Christ's sacrifice to redeem men to himself, or sorry, the the good thing revealed, we turn thirdly to the good product, what he produces out of his good thing. What what does the gospel then produce? Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. The author of Hebrews says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He says, look at every sacrifice, look at every priest, look at, look at every religious system all over the world. They're constantly doing things. 
There's always one more mass to go to. There's always one more tenant of Islam to keep. There's always one more thing to do. There's always a little bit more enlightenment to gain. There's always something else to do. And they do it constantly. Just like the Jewish sacrificial system, over and over and over again, because it's not actually accomplishing anything, it's never finished. And so you just keep doing and doing and doing and doing. And all of the sacrificial system, all of the works of men, all the things that we do can never take away sins. We do all of the things and yet stand the same before God as when we started. Verse 12, but, right? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. What a contradiction that is. What, what a, a, a picture that is of how different Christ's work is. Every other priest stands daily, constantly ministering and offering sacrifices and doing. Christ did it once. And then he sat at the right hand of the Father. His work's finished. There's nothing else for him to do. He's waiting. The appointed hour is coming. The time will arrive, we read about that in the book of Revelation, where he will come and he will make all of his enemies his footstool, where he will take everything that is rightfully his, he will lay claim on it, and none will be able to stand against him. But that hour is not today. And while he waits, the Father's good and perfect and gracious timing, because that is gracious timing, it is God extending the hour in which men have an opportunity to repent and turn back to him. And while he waits, he does nothing. He waits. Because there's nothing left to do. The work is finished. Now don't get me wrong, Christ does many things he intercedes on our behalf. He ministers to us through the Holy Spirit. He does work in us. But as far as the work of salvation is concerned, it's done. There is nothing else to be done. And that's why that picture, we see Christ over and over again. It's at the end of the Gospels. We see it throughout the book of Acts. We see it at the beginning of the book of Revelation. When we see Christ in heaven in the New Testament, on the other side of the cross, he's always sitting at the right hand of the Father's throne in heaven. Because the work is done. And so he's sitting, resting, awaiting the time when he will stand again to return for his own. There's nothing left to do. And so he is the one who has offered one sacrifice for sins forever. We live in the grace of that purchase daily, moment by moment. We cling each instant to the grace that allows us to participate in the glory of God by being the love gift of the Father to the Son and the Son in turn back to the Father but the work is done. I cannot overemphasize that enough. There is nothing for us to do in our salvation. 
When Paul talks about us working out our salvation in the epistles, he is not talking about us finishing it as though it's a work that Christ started and we need to put the last finishing touches on. Those are always the worst, right, Nick? You get right to the end of a project and there's that last like 5% of a project that takes almost as long as the first 95%. Christ didn't leave the last 5% undone that we're finishing in ourselves. When Paul says we're working out our salvation, what he's saying is that we're working out, we're living daily in light of our salvation, showing the fruit of it to the world around us, not that we're completing it as though it were unfinished at this point. Our salvation is done. It's complete. It's finished. He who has begun a good work in us is faithful and will complete it. He's done all the work that needs to be done. We're just waiting for our poor, human, frail sense of time to catch up with what He's accomplished. And so there is no ritual. There is no recitation. There is no work. There's no necessary act or statement for us to contribute. Salvation is, from start to finish, God's work complete, done, and accomplished. It is from the very beginning to the very end, completely unilateral. We have nothing to contribute to it. It is utterly monergistic. We have no part in it. We don't synergize in some way with God where we do a piece and he does a piece and and it works out together to be a complete salvation. It's monergistic. He does all of it. I love the way the Reformers put it. They famously said that uh, I contribute nothing to my own salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. I have no peace in any good piece of my salvation. I have nothing that I've ever contributed that has made me more savable. God has done it all from start to finish. For him, it is once and perfectly completed. For us, the gospel is the work of Christ once and forever accomplished and completed, and yet it is daily and moment by moment working itself out in us. He's finished. There's nothing else to add. We're trying to live up to that. We're trying to grow into that reality. We are day by day living and seeking to look like What we already know we are, I love that phrase in John's first epistle where he says, until that day when we shall see him and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're already in Christ's eyes, in God's eyes, we're already just like Christ. At the moment of salvation... Christ took our sin on himself and put his righteousness on us. And we now stand before the Father with all the rights and privileges as though we had lived Christ's life. We just don't look like it in day-to-day form yet. But praise God, someday we're going to stand before him and when we do, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
these poor, frail human bodies will catch up to the reality of what we really are, Christ's completed work. And then we will look like Him as we ought to. So as we slip into the Christmas season, we talk much in the next month about the birth of Christ and the joy of the season and the love of God. But never let us lose sight of the fact that the only reason this is a joyous season, the only reason Christ's birth is something worth rejoicing in, is because He was headed for the cross. If Christ had come and lived a perfect life and gone back to heaven and skipped the cross, we would have no cause for rejoicing. Some will claim that Christ came and He set a good example for us that we can follow. If that's all He did, then we are of all men most miserable because there is no good example that we can follow. We're incapable, unwilling, unable. If Christ came and all He did was die, but He didn't die in our place, then we are of all men most miserable. Our hope, our joy, our great anticipation in this Christmas season is because Christ coming is the first step on the path that leads to Christ on the cross in my place, and in your place, so that that sacrifice offered once and forever could be made. Verse 14, as we close, for by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. All who are the fathers, all who He has started His work in, Christ has finished that work we stand before the Father as sons and heirs, perfect in the blood of Christ. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are good and gracious to us. We thank You that in Your great love and mercy, You set out from eternity past to redeem us and to call us a people unto Yourself not because we did anything, not because we deserve anything, not because we have any right to call upon you, but because you are loving and gracious and worthy of praise. Help us to lift you up, to honor you and praise you, and more than anything in this Christmas season, to have the gospel foremost in our hearts and minds. We thank you now in Christ's precious name. Amen.